There's something about Adventist audiences around the world that eschew the front seats. It doesn't matter where I go. The front seats are usually the last to be taken. But I'm delighted to have the opportunity of being with you today for this hour. I always look forward to the Amen Conference every time I've had the opportunity of being there. I'm always blessed and inspired, and it's good to see our medical and dental professionals seriously interested in, about, in, a, in carrying out the work of the Lord. We live in awesome times in many ways. Tomorrow morning I have the privilege of sharing with you just for a little bit about some of what is happening in health ministries around the world. But um, there has never been a time in the history of our church that I'm aware of that from the highest levels of the church there has been an interest and a commitment to health ministry as there is today. I have been involved in health ministry for more than 35 years and I have never seen anything uh, such as what we're seeing right now. An annual council just finished and annual council was led off. The first three sessions were devoted to health ministry. First time that's ever happened. So <clears throat> for those of you who have a passion, as I do, about health ministry, it's a wonderful time to be living. I want to just share with you some things that I've learned along the way. I want to share with you a few of what I consider to be the essential elements to successful church health, church health, church-based health ministry. And as we begin, I would just like to invite you to bow your heads with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we have been reminded today, especially in our devotional this morning, that without you and with your blessing and your spirit, we can do nothing. And so we invite your presence into our midst once again this afternoon, asking that you would speak to our hearts, enlighten our minds, and strengthen us for the work that lies before is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we talk about those essential elements, I want to diverge for just a moment to ask the question, what is health ministry? We talk a lot about it. Now we're hearing the term comprehensive health ministry. It's a rebranding of an old term, um, health evangelism, health ministry, Whatever it is, it really is this, or comprehensive health ministry, it's really the same thing. But what is it? We probably all would give dif different definitions if I was to ask you to each write a definition down. We're not going to take the time to do that, but what is health ministry? And I would like to suggest to you this morning, or this evening, this afternoon, that health ministry is more than a set of scientifically established health principles and practices that can prolong and preserve life. It's more profoundly important than its component parts of healthful eating, good exercise, um, stress management, drinking water, uh, getting an adequate amount of sleep. 
the eight natural remedies that we often uh, refer to from Ministry of Healing, page 127. It can also do far more than modern science has discovered. I think we limited it when we, when we talk only about the scientific principles, which are there and we can praise the Lord for that. The Seventh-day Adventist health message, when rightly understood and when it's linked with scripture and with the God of scripture, can actually bring the dead to life. I'll share with you in a few minutes a quotation in that regard. And when we confine any part of the health message merely to its scientifically validated facts, we tragically shortchange our audience of the eternal benefits that are only available through Jesus Christ. The health message is more than what it appears to be and what we often define it or think of it as. The first essential element for successful health ministry, and I think it applies to the practice as well as to the church and to the community, um, it applies anywhere we seek to do health ministry, is that we must never forget to share Jesus as the only effective agent of change. The Spirit of Prophecy told us in Ministry of Healing, page 424, the medical missionary work is in no case to be divorced from the gospel ministry. The Lord has specified that the two shall be as closely connected as the arm is with the body. And without this union, neither part of the work is complete. The medical missionary work is the gospel in illustration. Still have a few good seats up here. <laughs> I know they're the farthest ones forward, but we're a friendly group. When I was first beginning in health ministry, I was freshly minted with a degree from Loma Linda. I was excited about the possibilities that, it, it, uh, that, were, that lay ahead. I had been called to a large city to a particular church that had struggled with traditional health evangelism. The conference president said, we want to look at community health education. We've been reading the spirit of prophecy and we believe that this is the direction we need to go. And so without any previous experience, I accepted that invitation and we moved and I began my work. And I planned a whole raft of health education programs in the community. And believe it or not, people came. And they came and were excited. And we filled our classes. And during that first year and a half, you know, I believed that I needed to establish relationships and I needed to visit people in their home and invite them to study the Bible. Not just talk about nutrition and exercise and all the other good things we were talking about. And so I would ask people if I could come and visit them. And they'd say, sure, we'd be glad to have you come. And I would go and I'd knock on the door and they'd open the door and they'd bring me in. They'd give me something to drink. They would just welcome me. And 
they'd ask me questions about diet. They'd ask me questions about exercise. They'd ask me questions about smoking cessation. They'd ask me all the questions, uh, questions about all the things that they had been learning in the classes, in the church. But when I would say to them, very carefully broach some spiritual question to them, they'd say, by the way, did you know it's going to snow tomorrow? Or they'd say, do you know who's going to win the ball game this weekend? And it was very clear to me that they were not comfortable about talking about spiritual things. About a year and a half into it, an old family friend called me up and said, could I come and stay with you? I'm going to be in the area. And I said, sure. Now, I realized that he was probably about my age today. But I thought he was a very old man then. <laughs> and uh, we welcomed him into our home. And he stayed with us for about three or four days. He came with me in the evenings. He came with me on some visits. He listened to my lectures. He, he never said anything. Well, we had an opportunity to talk in the car. And I shared with him my frustration. And on the morning he left, he said, I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes. I have a suggestion. And he said to me, Fred, I've heard your, your heart cry. I've heard your frustration. I have one suggestion. He said, you must identify yourself as a spiritual person if you're going to be able to talk to people about spiritual things. And I said to him, but it's in the church. They know it's a Christian church. They know it's an Adventist church. It's on the sign. They can't avoid it. It's on all the flyers. He said, Fred, if you're going to talk to people about spiritual things, you've got to identify yourself as a spiritual person. And I said, but, you know, we do have some prayer. Yes, he said, I've seen that. But he said, you've got to do more than that. I said, well, how do I do that? And he said, well, I would suggest that you begin every class with a little inspirational thought. He said it shouldn't be long, and it needs to be connected to the topic of the evening in some way. He said, if you try and talk to them about the 2,300 days, and then talk to them about what they eat, he said, they're going to wonder what they got into. But he said, if you'll talk to them about what the Bible says about what you're going to be talking about, and make it short, including a prayer, he said, I wouldn't take more than three or four minutes. And I had a very, very secular audience. It was actually later on, I, when I looked at all the data that I collected, and I was uh, OCD about collecting data at that time. <laughs> I learned a lot. Um, but... I realized that we were getting about 60% of our people were Jewish. And I was, a, I was told we were in a largely Jewish neighborhood. And I recognized, of course, by features and so forth that many were. And I didn't want to offend them. I want to make friends with them. So I was really scared. And it took me several weeks after that visit. And I had a new cooking class starting. And I thought to myself, I've got to do something. I mean, this was a burden that the Lord had used an old friend to put on my shoulders. 
one of those what I now recognize as a pearl of go of uh, a pearl of truth that I needed at that time in my ministry. Anyway, I really was struggling and finally the morning of that cooking class I said, Lord, all right, you're going to have to show me what to do. And all day long I was burdened as to what I was going to do and late in the afternoon the Lord gave me an idea. And when that meeting started, I welcomed everybody and I took my Bible and I read a couple of verses from Proverbs. And I said, you folks may be surprised to know that the Bible even says something about diet. And I just made a short lesson about what it did in an application, had a very quick prayer. And we went on with a cooking class and we ended it with a, with a prayer. We'd always done that. Did that every night of the cooking class. Asked people if I could go visit, knock on their door, welcome me in, just the same. But when we sat down, they said, by the way, we didn't know the Bible said anything about such and such. <laughs> and so many of them had just opened the door to what I had been longing and praying for. And I began taking my Bible <laughs> to the visits because it was very helpful. And yes, they asked me the, tr the questions about nutrition and they asked me about the other health questions. But more often than not, they were amazed that the Bible had something to say about what they had been learning. And I never offended anybody. Now, I say that very carefully because I recognize some people may have not said anything and just never come back. You always have those people. But nobody argued with me, except for one. I'll tell you about that later. I've often wondered why, having read this kind of statement, I didn't see the connection. But that, those words of wisdom changed my ministry for the better those many years ago. The gospel of health is to be firmly linked with the ministry of the word. It is the Lord's design that the restoring influence of health reform shall be a part of the last great effort to proclaim the gospel message. That's the time in which we're living today. And never has that kind of, that statement been more important. There are a lot of godless behavior change programs, even in the church. And I'm making a plea with you to make sure that you add Jesus to those programs. The goal of our programs must be to introduce people to the only power that can affect permanent change in their lives. Now, Ephesians 2 and the first three verses very clearly describe the human condition. And you're all familiar with this passage. And you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. I mean, it describes all of us before we met Jesus. 
but it describes the people who come from the community to our programs also. And so this is Joe. He's dead in sins, just like we were before we met Jesus. Should we set a good example for Joe? We could model good exercise. We can show him how to eat right. We can show him that we don't smoke and we need to avoid depressive speech and attitudes around him. But that will that bring Joe to life? Should we educate him about portion control? Maybe the importance of avoiding trans fats, dangers of cheese, stress management, depression recovery. We can do all those good things, but it won't bring Joe to life. Should we give him, good, give him encouragement? We can say, you know, you can do it. Don't give up. This is important. You'll be glad once the pain is over, you'll succeed. No time to be discouraged, but it will not bring life to Joe. Should we provide him, provide him in a better, a better environment, take him to a lifestyle center or something like that, remove him from a bad environment, put him with other successful people, surround him with positive role models, create an encouraging setting in which he can be more likely to make significant changes in his life. Will that bring life to Joe? No. None of these things bring life to the dead. <clears throat> the next three verses in Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the statement that I, you know, sometimes you read things and they don't, maybe you're not like that, but, you know, I read things and they don't sink in and then I go back and say, wow, I never saw that before. But about, uh, about six months ago, I was in my devotions just reading and I came across this statement. It says, to arouse those spiritually dead, those are the Joes and the Sues of life, to create new tastes, new motives. That's what health education is all about, creating new tastes and new motives in people's lives requires as great an outlay of power as to raise one from physical death. Those of you and I know if you're physicians, you beg, you plead, you sometimes feel like it's almost futile to talk to some of your patients about making the changes that would improve their lives dramatically. Things that may seem simple to you. As a health educator, I sometimes wonder, how can I motivate people to change? And yet, as Christians, I think we are called to raise people from the dead. Amen. We can't do it. We can only do it by pointing people 
to the power of Jesus Christ. So it to create these new tastes, new motives, requires as great an outlay of power as to raise one from physical death. It is indeed giving life to the dead to convert the sinner from the error of his ways. And we can only do that with Jesus. It's not us, it's him. Health message cannot be separated, should not be separated from the gospel message. A few of the health promoting effects of the health message have been confirmed by science to today, but the most skillful, the most perceptive, the most capable scientist cannot bring the dead to life. Only the gospel brings the dead to life. And the health message expands the gospel and brings life more abundantly. Jesus is the life giver and Jesus is the health giver. And we must always keep that in mind. And so our mission is to take the message of health that most of us feel passionate about and feel it, it's impacted our lives. We believe in it. We want to share it. But if we do it in such a way that we separate it from the power of Jesus Christ, it loses its impact. If a person attends a health program in a Seventh-day Adventist church and understands and applies the principles, they may have gained a few years of life, and we're happy about that. But if they did not learn that the power to change comes from Jesus, then the church has failed in accomplishing the mission that God has called it to. You know, we, we're all aware of the book of James, and we often quote the verse, works without faith is dead. We all know that. But I would like to suggest to you that science without faith, science without Jesus is also dead. I'll borrow this from Mark Finley. You are all well aware of the problems of malpractice in this country, the challenges that it poses, both dental, dentistry and particularly in medicine. But I would like to suggest there is also something called spiritual malpractice. As Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we have a very specific mission, and if we don't carry it out, we become guilty of spiritual malpractice. This is my own definition. Spiritual malpractice is negligence by act or omission by a Christian who fails to share the availability of God's power to change and heal, thereby causing continuing pain and injury and eventual eternal death. We should ever remember that the object of the medical missionary work is to point sin-sick men and women 
to the man of Calvary who takes away the sin of the world. We cannot separate the two. And if we do, we're not fulfilling the mission and we become guilty of spiritual malpractice. The second important element for successful programs is that we must focus on building long-term relationships. You know, traditionally, and I've been as guilty as anyone, we host an event that happens four nights a week for four to six weeks. We bring in the professionals, and today we bring in the videos and the DVDs. The, this event can interrupt the life of the church. It interrupts the life of those who come from the community. And when it's all over, we go, Phew. we don't have to do that for a while. My wife and I did a very, a number of years ago, we did a very successful, what we considered a very successful cooking school. The Lord really blessed. The guy that did the PR did a fantastic job. We had almost 600 people. We were overflowing. And those of you who've done cooking schools know what that means in terms of sample preparation and so forth. And we did it for four nights in a row. And we lived 200 miles away. And so when we were finished on the fourth night, my wife and I were helping the, there were two ladies, bless their hearts. They came every night and all they did was wash dishes. And as they were washing dishes and everybody had gone, we'd said all the goodbyes, we were helping clean up the final things and I was carrying a tray of dirty dishes to the sink. And they had their backs to me and they had their hands in the water. And the lady who was doing the water, the sudsy, the, the soapy cleaning, as I approached, she didn't know I was there. She pulled one hand out of the soapy water, turned to the other one, and she said, phew, we don't have to do this for two more years. <laughs> and I thought to myself, wow. Now I understood how she was feeling. On the way home that night, when the kids were asleep in the back of the vehicle, I turned to my wife and I said to her, I have a question for you. I said, when we were dating in college, if after about three months or two or three months of dating, I had turned to you one evening and said, you know, I really enjoy spending time with you. But, you know, school is really busy. I have all kinds of appointments. I mean, obligations, tests, papers, classes. Can I see you in one year again? Would you be my wife? And she laughed at me and said, that's a silly question. But we talked a little more about it. Because when we build relationships, we have to spend time with people or we don't grow those relationships. And what I began to realize was that we were doing episodic health ministry. And when it was done, we were just picking up our things and going somewhere else. And even the people in the church were going, phew, we don't have to do it for two years. And they had no idea of how they were how, how the relationships were just beginning to bud. Yeah. 
It was the first meeting, the first date, if you will, a date for Jesus. And then, of course, sometimes, maybe we, but sometimes those looking on evaluate the success of our programs by the immediate baptisms that result. And they don't really understand the whole process. And I think that's a tragedy, but we don't have time to talk much about that today. You know, today, free time has, status has changed. How many of you have more free time today than you did 20 years ago? You do? How did you do it? My children all grew up. The children all grew up. <laughs> and you retired. Is that what you said? <laughs> you know, 20 to 4, and there's, there's good data out there to show that free time, I mean, think about it. There was a time when I left the office, I can remember, I dictated letters. And when I went home in the evening, nobody sent me any emails. There was no such thing as email. Today, it's so easy, I get into bed and I look at my smartphone to see who's communicated with me. And, you know, in my role now, people are on the other side of the earth and it's, you know, when I'm going to bed, they're waking up and they want answers. And, Sometimes I just say, I mean, I have to be very intentional about it. All evening long, my computer's going ding, ding. This email coming in that, you know, of course, some of it was with the kids and grandkids, but free time has diminished for most people. A program, you're one of those outliers. You know, whenever you look at a group of people, they're always the outliers. There's always somebody who raises their head when I ask that question. But a program that convenes 20 or more times in four to six weeks excludes a majority of people. And we tend to attract the, primarily the retired, the unemployed, and the socially unique. <laughs> there are exceptions, but they're rare. In the book Evangelism, and this was counsel to evangelists, but after all, we're health evangelists. Ellen White said many years ago, for years light has been given upon this point, showing the necessity of following up an interest that has been raised, and in no case leaving it until all have decided that lean toward the truth and have experienced the conversion necessary for baptism and united with some church or formed one themselves. We do the people we seek to serve a disservice when we pick up stakes and we move on. When we do one program, we say, ah, that didn't, wasn't very successful. So we're going to do something else. And as I, you know, I've been a health, local health ministries leader. I've seen it over and over. Church does this, does a cooking school, and they get disappointed in the results. So then they say, no, we're going to try this. And that one doesn't give any better result. No, we're going to try this. Now, there's nothing wrong with the various programs that we offer in the community. But if we don't do something consistently and well, so that the community begins to depend upon us, we've discovered for the past 20, almost 25 years now, 
We took cooking schools and went to take them to, in our own church, to once a month, 10 times a year. We saw tremendous results. And people just kept coming back. They keep coming back. They keep coming back. And we don't just talk to them about nutrition. We talk to them about physical activity. We talk to them about all of the health principles. They always get a simple, and I mean a really simple meal, and see a simple food demonstration. And I've come to call those low-intensity programs, but high-impact. And there's a continual influence in the community from month to month, from year to year. I can point you to several churches that have been doing it now for more than 20 years that way. And every year, they're getting 10, 15, 20 baptisms because of a low-intensity program. But they're always there for those people. And they plan follow-up activities. They, it, these these low-intensity programs tend not to wear out the talent pool of your church members. They, they don't wear out the community, and they maximize the church and community interface when we do them properly. And they can be conducted in any church, regardless of the talent mix that your church has. It is through the social relations that Christianity comes in contact with the world. Social relations, sanctified by the Spirit of Christ, must be improved in bringing souls to Christ. We need to recognize that health ministry is not, is, it's a process, it's not an event. It's not an episode. It's a process that must be ongoing. We must have structured follow-up activities. Health ministry in many ways is like running a marathon for those of you who have done that. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. I'll just tell you very quickly a story. 1978, I did a smoking cessation program. Started with a devotional, five minutes and a prayer. At the end of the first night, a man by the name of Tom came up to me, and he was introduced himself as an attorney for the federal government, and he was angry. He said, there is no such thing as God, and you, will not, you, should, not expect me to, you should not expect to see me again because you talked about God. Well, he was so angry it wasn't worth even talking to him about, and... I don't really remember now what I said, but it wasn't much. I just said in my head, I'll never see him again. But you know, the next night he was there. <laughs> and the next, and at the follow, at the end of the meeting, he was up and he was angrier. And I thought we, he was going to hit me. <laughs> I mean, he was shaking his fist in my face. I thought, I'll never see him again. But he was there the third night. He was there the fourth night. He was there the last night. And on the last night, he came up to me and he said, I just want you to know I quit smoking and it had nothing to do with God. <laughs> that was 1978. We had begun inviting everybody that came to any program to bring their family, spouse, children, to a once-a-month vegetarian dinner that we served in the church fellowship hall and I had invited the whole group of course I never expected to see Tom 
But believe it or not, the very next Sunday night that we had this scheduled, I walked in and there was Tom and his wife and two children. And I walked over to him and he stood up immediately and he said, I said, I'm really glad to see you, so glad. And he introduced me to his wife and to his two children and he turned to me and he said, I hope you're not going to talk about God here. (laughs) And his wife tugs on his sleeve and says, we are in a church. (laughs) For the next six years, Tom and his wife and his two children came almost every month. We invited them to their home for three years into our home for meals. They came. But every time, don't talk to me about God. I said, at the front door of my house, he said. I said, we're so glad you're here. He says to me, I hope you're not going to talk to me about God. I said, come on in. I won't say a word. After about three years, he quit taunting me about God. I thought, praise the Lord. Now maybe we'll get somewhere. We invited him to meetings, evangelistic meetings, Bible studies. No interest at all. After about six years, he was transferred. And then a few months later, we were transferred. We lost track of each other. Five years ago, I was sitting in my office in Upper Columbia Conference office. And my secretary called me on the phone and said, there is a Tom that would like to speak with you. Well, of course, I've met many Toms since then, and I have many friends who, are by the na- who have the name Tom. And I didn't, I said, he said, he told me he w- you would know who he was. I asked her for the last name, and she said I'd, he didn't give it to me. So I picked the phone up, and I said, this is Fred. Can I help you? And he said, this is Tom. Do you remember me? And I hate people who ask me. I'm glad to see you nodding your head. Because I struggle with remembering names. And, but he had a voice. And I think the Holy Spirit was working in my mind. And I said, I do remember you, Tom. I said, what gives me the pleasure of hearing from you? And he said, well, how do you remember me? I said, well, you know, since I last saw you many years ago, I said, I have taught in graduate school. And I said, professors remember their best and worst students. (laughs) And he said, which one was I? (laughs) He hadn't lost it. I said, well, you tell me why you called, and before we hang up, I'll answer that question. (laughs) He told me the most wonderful story, and we don't have time to tell the whole story this this afternoon, but they had retired. They had faced a problem. They had spent two years between he and his wife trying to find a solution to the problem. Later, I learned it was a financial problem, and they had spent at least more than 12 months discussing whether they should try God or not. And 
neither of them had ever been to church in their lives except to our inside of our church. And they had raised their children without God, without any church affiliation or experience at all. So they didn't know where to go and they couldn't remember the name of the church that had helped them stop smoking. But finally one day, Tom said, you know, I think it had to do with Adventist. And he said to his wife, let's look it up in the phone book. And lo and behold, there was an Adventist church four blocks from their home where they had retired. And so the next Sunday, they went to church. <laughs> he said, we had a brand new Cadillac the best model there was. And he had told me how he had been really blessed and how he'd been very successful and they were very comfortably retired and so forth. They drove into the parking lot and he said there was no car, except for one. And he said it was really an old beat up car. And he said it belonged to two people who were about as old and beat up as that car. Actually, he said they were older than the car. They were pulling weeds in the garden, in the landscaping. And he said, I drove up near where they were working, and he said the gentleman straightened himself out and he, up, and he kind of limped over, and he looked in my window, and I rolled it down, and he said with the sweetest smile, can I help you? And we said, well, we came to church. And he said he broke out into a big smile, and he looked at both of us, and he said you know, you're one day late. <laughs> he said, if you'll come back next Saturday, my wife and I'll be standing at the door waiting for you. Six days early. He, w he said he, he was so nice, we couldn't resist. <laughs> so the next Saturday, we got up, got dressed, came to church, and the parking lot was full. Only problem was, he said, when we walked in the door, we didn't recognize anybody. They were all dressed up in their Sabbath clothes. But he said, they recognized us. They were standing there waiting. And he said, they were the most simple, wonderful people, but they were so friendly. Make a very, very long story short. They invited them home to lunch. After lunch, this couple, the gentleman said to them, you know, what brought you to church? And they began telling him about the problem they were having, and he held his hand up and he said, we haven't even finished eighth grade. We can't help you with that kind of a problem. But we know people in the church who could. Would you like to meet them? Who probably could. Would you like to meet them? He said, we'll call our pastor, and we have a man that we think, he knows a man who I, he, we think would be really helpful to you. We said, we couldn't resist. And so they set up an appointment. Set up an appointment with, a financial, with the pastor and a financial advisor. And they poured out their problem. And this advisor said, you know, I think I may have some suggestions. But before I do, I really need to pray to God that God will lead us to find a solution Amen. to this problem. He said, I almost said to him, there's no such thing as God. <laughs> but he said, I didn't. 
And then he said to me, and now you're probably saying to yourself, I've learned something. Anyway, he told me that eight weeks, or about six weeks before, he and his wife had been baptized at Seventh-day Adventist. 35 years later. Praise the Lord. He's now the elder of his, a head elder of his church. And he calls me. He's one of the few people other than my wife and children who have permission to call me when I'm overseas on my cell phone. Hey, it never takes a long time, but this is what he always says. I just got to tell you, I've just been studying with this family and they've accepted Jesus. He said, I'm making up for lost time. <laughs> what a wonderful story. And they all started at a smoking cessation program when he didn't believe in God. Now, before we finish that first phone call, he said to me, now you have to tell me something. Which one was I? <laughs> but before he had done that, he had apologized to me for being rude and unkind. And he really had been. And I had the privilege to say to him, Tom, I forgave you long, long ago. And he said, thank you. So he said, which one was I? I said, you've probably guessed. <laughs> you know, I think that he wouldn't have had that experience if there had been no structured follow-up. It was simple, but it was just a chance to make friends. That's the most important thing it did. The next important element is we need to love people more than the health principles. I love the health principles. Please understand that. Please don't leave here saying that I don't. I was at a church just several years ago. They invited me to potluck after service. As I took my plate to go through the line, and the lady who was very much in charge of the potluck, and you know those, <laughs> had insisted that I go through first. I don't like to go through first. Everybody looks at what I eat, <laughs> especially when I talk about health. But that's okay. I'm comfortable with the choices I make. She handed me this plate as I said amen. She said, you go through first. Of course, everybody was looking at me. But as I took the plate, she said and pointed to the first dish on the line on the table and said, this dish has real cheese in it. <laughs> Very disdainfully. I had no idea who made that dish. It's a dish I would have passed by without a second thought. It's just not my favorite food. Now every eye was looking at me. And I knew it was probably one of those set of eyes, pairs of eyes, was the one who made it. So I took a small, small spoonful, and as I did, she said, oh! and everybody heard it. <laughs> I had lots of other good things. Filled my plate, went to the table, had a wonderful fellowship. Potluck was over. I was walking out the door into the hallway, and there was a lady with tears running down her cheeks standing there. No elder, no pastor around. I said, walked over to her and I said, can I help you, ma'am? She said, oh, thank you, Dr. Harding. I'm the lady 
who made the dish with real cheese. She, does, she said, I was baptized four weeks ago. Nobody has ever talked to me about health or diet. She said, I took the ham out of it this morning when I made it. I said, thank you very much. And the tears were flowing more. She said, I told my husband that if this happened again, I said, it's happened before. She said, this is the third time. She said, I would never darken the door of the church again. But she said, I'm going to because you took one spoonful and ate it. I said, ma'am, let me talk to you for a few minutes. We went upstairs to the foyer, sat down in some couple of chairs. There's no excuse for that kind of behavior. But I talked to her about the beauty of the health message. On the way home, I called the pastor. And I said, uh, you got a problem. He was a young pastor. He was a good pastor. I knew him. He was at another church in his district. That evening, he and his wife went over to their, this lady's home. And his wife put her arms around that lady, invited her to her home, gave her some cooking classes, just gave her a wonderful orientation to the health message. And today, that lady is in charge of potlucks. <laughs> and the last time I talked to the pastor, which is now about two years ago, he said to me, you know, he said, the best news is that two weeks ago, I just baptized her husband. And they're now both together in the faith. We need to love people more than we do the health message. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't love the health message. Sorry, I went the wrong way. We don't make the health reform an iron bedstead. I love this statement. Cutting people off or stretching them out to fit. One person cannot be a standard for everybody else. What we want is a little sprinkling of good common sense. Don't be extremist. If you err, it would be better to err on the side of the people than on the side where you cannot reach them. Um, what was that quote from? Oh. I'm going to put this up on the web. You can have the whole presentation if you'd like. The, the, the last slide has the web address. Okay? It's not there yet. Five minutes? Whew. Let's roll. Um, you know, there are two classes, trouble. There, <laughs> two classes have been presented before me. First, those who are not living up to the light which God has given them. Secondly, those who are too rigid in carrying out their ones. And we have these in both of our, we have these, both of these in all of our churches. But we need to make sure that we're the right kind of people. Um, let them find out what constitutes true health reform and teach its principles both by precept and by a quiet, consistent example. Okay. Our programs are best when conducted in the local church. Um, I'm just going to move very quickly here. Um, there are many advantages in the church. We have these, all this real estate that's vacant most of the week. 
And I think it really only makes good stewardship sense to do the programs in the church. The church is the home of the Christian. We want to bring people into our homes. We need to do it in the church. And we don't have to worry about the transition between some hotel room and, and the church and the fall off that off usually occurs in that. It supports the wise use of our resources. And this I, is probably goes without saying in terms of the audience that, I, that I'm speaking to right now, but we need to be based on sound science, and there are good reasons for that. We want evidence-based information. We want to be accurate on our teachings because if they see that we are intelligent with regard to health, they will be more ready to believe that we are sound in Bible doctrines. I can remember a man came to a smoking cessation, I mean to a weight control program that I did. He, he looked like, in fact, when he introduced himself by his first name, he was the last one in the whole room that did it, and he said, I'm here because my wife made me come, and I won't be back. It turned out he was the most prominent bariatric physician in the entire area. I didn't know who he was. But at the end of the program, he introduced me as to who he truly was. I would have been scared to death had I known earlier who he was. He said to me, may I refer patients to your program? And for eight years, he sent patients from his practice to our program in the church with his recommendations. And I had the privilege of studying the Bible with him. We became good friends. So, you know, the extremist works and words can be spared for they do more injury than the wisest and most intelligent men with the best influence they can exert can counteract. Um, just these men, we're talking about extremists here, men and women too, these men are doing a work which Satan loves to see go on. That's extremism. And then lastly, I would plead with you to please sell only information, not products. The church is not the place to merchandise products. And yet, I find that the lure of money entices many. And I think it's unfortunate. We need to remember the story of Naaman. You all know the story of Naaman. He was a leper. He went to the little maid, talked to his wife, and the rest of the story you're well aware of. And finally, he went to his king, and he ended up eventually at the door of the prophet. And the prophet sent his servant down, which was a social faux pas, and said, Naaman, go down to the River Jordan and wash seven times, and you will be made whole. And Naaman got angry. He headed back saying, you know, the rivers in my country are a lot cleaner than this muddy Jordan River. But his simpler servants, the scripture says, reasoned with him as his anger cooled and said, why don't you just try it? And so he went down to the River Jordan, and he bathed seven times, and he was healed. Now, was it the minerals in the water that healed him? Or was it the ritual perfect time of seven? No. He was following the instructions of God. It was only through following the specific directions of the prophet that he could find healing. Willing obedience alone would bring the desired result. But there's another sad chapter to this story, and that's the story of Gehazi. 
Gehazi saw all of the wealth that Naaman had brought with him. And he said, oh, if I could just have some of it. And he let, lied to his boss. And then he lied to Naaman when he caught up with him. And Naaman gladly gave him twice what he asked for. He was so grateful. And then he went back. And we all know what the Bible records, that he became a leper. We, the temptation is so strong sometimes to sell something to those who are disadvantaged by disease and personally profit by it. And we have all kinds of unproven health products that are being sold in some churches, multi-level marketing schemes, ad nauseum, the nutraceuticals, the botanicals, just goes on and on and on. We need to stay away from them. Prophets and Kings, page 251, solemn are the lessons taught by this experience of one to whom had been given high and holy privileges. That's you and I. The course of Gehazi was such as to place a stumbling block in the pathway of Naaman, upon whose mind had broken a wonderful light and who was favorably disposed toward the service of the living God. And praise God, Naaman remained faithful. The Bible records that. In spite of Gehazi, people can smell conflict of interest even before you can. And we need to be very, very careful of that. So the solution is not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Health ministry can be a most effective work if it, it, you know, we need to be passionate about sharing the power of Christ. His word and prayer is the most effective agent of change. We need to recognize that health ministry is a process, not an event. And we need to be committed to building long-term relationships through various kinds of structured follow-up activities. We've got to love people more than we love the health message. We keep those things in priority. We need to be, we, we should conduct our programs in the local church wherever possible. We always should offer accurate evidence-based health programs and we should sell only solid, accurate information, not products and all the things that are out there that sometimes happen. And when we do, can be a very, very effective work for God. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Father, you have given us such a precious message of health. It's as precious as the message of the gospel and you have counseled us to never separate the two. Give us strength, wisdom, and courage, and the creativity to do it in a way that will be meaningful to all those we seek to minister to, that truly it can be the right arm that you designed and desire it to be in these last days as we seek to share the gospel of Jesus with as many as possible before he comes. We ask that you would keep us each one faithful until that blessed day is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.